Thank you for listening to the Voices of UMass Chan, featuring the people, ideas, and advances of UMass Chan Medical School. Artificial intelligence is changing so many parts of our lives, and of course, healthcare is no exception. How will AI change your appointments with your doctors? What should we be aware of? And could AI actually save, be the thing that saves healthcare? Two of our colleagues here at UMass Chan are perhaps more equipped than most to answer some of these questions. So let's welcome Drs. David McManus and Neil Maria. Good morning to both of you. Morning, Jennifer. Good morning. So Dr. McManus is a cardiologist by training, chair and professor and executive of, of medicine of the Department of Medicine here at UMass Chan and executive sponsor of the program in digital medicine. Dr. Maria is a gastroenterologist, assistant professor of medicine and co-director of the digital medicine program. Thanks both for making times in your schedules to really help us understand what's at stake. Um, and, and let's just start with AI. It's a huge buzzword, but it can mean a lot of different things to different people. So Dr. Maria, why don't we start with you? Could you help us define AI and how you think about it? Yeah, so, you know, I think about AI, you know, sort of from a historical basis, you know, I think when people think about artificial intelligence, they think about, they've been seeing in the news over the last four to five years, but it's interesting, the history of artificial intelligence goes back to the late 1940s and the early 1950s. And people, I don't think, realize this, you know, probably the earliest application of artificial intelligence that you're probably familiar with was when you played checkers against the computer when you were a kid. And that was a machine learning algorithm that was developed by uh, IBM in the early 1950s. And that's where the, the term machine learning actually came from, was when they created a machine that could play checkers against a human being and actually improve over time as the AI was trained to learn about different pieces on the board. And it sounds like a very simple application, but it when you think about it, it's kind of a complex system that they had created. And, you know, there was a lot of trial and error, I think, from the 1950s to the early 2000s. It didn't really obviously take off because a lot of people have not thought about AI, I think, in the same way like they're thinking about it now until very recently. But something that, you know, Dr. McManus and I have talked about a lot, AI has actually been involved in industry and in your daily life probably a lot longer than you can think of, you know, with ad tech, you know, where you know, the different ads that pop up when you're, you know, searching the internet or surfing the internet, that's based on your inputs that you provided a machine based on your search history. And there are a lot of complex algorithms that are running in the background to say, hey, I think, you know, you might be interested in purchasing this or that. Yeah. And, you know, anyway, so when I think about artificial intelligence, I think about a computer algorithm that is trained on a series of inputs, a large volume of data to try and predict a particular outcome. And that's something that's been you know, basically have been around, like I said, for about the last 60 years or so. And, you know, I'll let uh, Dr. McManus sort of get, provide his definition, but how it applies to medicine, I think is where things get really interesting. That's right, Dr. McManus. What would you add to that in terms of medicine in 2023 and AI? Yeah, I, well, I think Neil gave a great definition of kind of how artificial intelligence came to be. Um, you know, the, the idea about applying it to medicine falls into a few different uh, categories that maybe we'll we'll talk about more. One, I think a lot of the attention around artificial intelligence recently comes from the chat GPT generative AI space. And so that's one application whereby um, a model was created to go out and read everything on the internet 
or everything provided to this machine with the idea of generating um, new content back in response to a conversational entry. Like, uh, you know, does the airport have a security checkpoint? You know, whereas if you Google that, you would not necessarily get what would feel like a conversational answer from a human. ChatGPT will analyze what's out there and actually provide you back a, uh, a narrative. And of course, it uses a variety of, of semantic uh, techniques to, so it's not really speaking. It doesn't use the same neural pathways that we do when we learn how to speak. But in essence, it's learned what the right thing to say collectively in response to a series of prompts is. And that, in a sense, is not so different from learning to play chess based on a certain set of rules. The other space is in predictive analytics. Um, and that's a space where AI has been around a little bit longer in the background. And we have multiple applications of use of artificial intelligence for prediction um, going on at UMass that we could talk about. I think that's probably the first and more dominant area that is being used in healthcare to say, predict uh, when you're likely to need a, a trip to the ICU or to predict a patient who may be more likely to respond well to a particular therapy and to, you know, to identify potentially risk uh, and escalate that if, if there is a uh, one application at UMass, for example, is that after you have a scan done of your lungs, an AI algorithm will read that scan to look for something urgent, like a, an embolus or a clot in the lungs. It still requires a human overread, but it will flag because there's thousands of, of these scans done. It will prioritize that scan for an overread so that the issue is not missed or there are not delays in care. So that sort of application is, is current, whereas some of the generative AI areas uh, are less applied. Although there's some really interesting studies using generative AI to respond to patient messages and other uh, healthcare areas uh, of need. So um, whether, and there are also some folks using it to generate their, their notes or, or responses to insurance companies about particular prior authorizations, what have you. So there are people using generative AI, but I would say the predictive AI space is, is really uh, more predominant. I'd add one thing, Jennifer, which is that I think the focus on AI is interesting to me because the application of these tools is really more of a, a shift in the a concept of acknowledging, because now there's a, a software as opposed to an individual physician or, or other human that you're dealing with. But the concept of sort of behavioral economics uh, is at play here, where health systems are electing to apply these tools, and they're doing so in a way to guide towards decisions and that and to augment human decision making, which in the prior paradigm of medicine, there really it was the doctor's decision was kind of the highest level of decision making. Right. And you know, now this requires the, the acknowledgement that, that that a system or a, an application might be able to nudge or or kind of um, move decisions, as I just mentioned, to augment humans, to augment the doctors. And that that component of application of AI to me is as or more interesting actually than the software itself. Yeah, I mean, I think that could probably be uncomfortable for some people, right? Uncomfortable maybe for traditionalists or people who just maybe need to have a better understanding of how it's working. So, so let's dive into a specific example, Dr. Maria. I know you're utilizing AI tools for, like Dr. McManus was saying, predictive diagnostics. So right. let's go very deeply into that example. Tell us about that innovation and how is it improving the care you can give to patients? 
Sure. Yeah. So I work um, in something called advanced endoscopy, which focuses uh, primarily on tumors that occur in the pancreas or in the biliary system, where which are basically these tiny tubes that drain your liver. And I'll talk about one example, which is in the bile ducts. There's a condition called cholangiocarcinoma, which is a relatively rare cancer, um, but we do see here at UMass and around the world uh, where a tumor can form within some of those very small pipes that drain the liver. And to get patients the optimal treatment outcome, you need to get a diagnosis sooner so they can get on treatment or potentially get surgery sooner. And unfortunately, our current diagnostic techniques that we have available to us to diagnose cholangiocarcinoma are not great. Um, so right now we have a very fancy like pipe cleaner that can go up and just sort of scrape some cells off the pipe or these very miniature forceps to get samples. But what we've seen in several studies is that the false negative rate associated with those biopsy techniques is extremely poor. So we're saying we're seeing folks having a sensitivity of like 15 to 30 percent. So false negative rate of greater than 50 percent. So patients needing multiple exams, multiple sampling techniques until they can get a diagnosis, which could sometimes be several months after they initially had symptoms of cholangiocarcinoma. And as we know, with cancer, the longer someone has to wait to get a diagnosis means the longer that they have to wait until they can get on treatment, which can unfortunately lead to them having a later stage of disease by the time they actually can get treatment and then they can't get surgery. And so where AI could potentially help there's a new tool called a cholangioscope, which is a basically a miniature camera that we can put into those pipes and actually directly visualize the tumor. And there were studies that came out in the last 10 years or so that when a physician looks at the, the images generated by that camera, he or she can actually say with some pretty good certainty, gosh, that looks bad. You know, that looks like cancer. Now, the problem is, is you can't take that to a tumor board or to a surgeon and say, hey, look, I think it looks really bad. You need to put this patient on chemotherapy now. You need to take this patient to surgery now. They're going to say to you, well, you know, it's, I'm glad that you think it looks bad, you know, but how am I supposed to make a decision about putting someone on chemotherapy just based on your visual impression? So what we're doing in our lab is we're using something called Virgo, which is a um, endoscope recording platform to record all of the videos from all of our endoscopic procedures here at UMass, but specifically from that miniature camera that I was talking about that can go into file duct. And we've generated, and uh, I'm going to talk about Virgo maybe in another way, but we've generated over 20,000 video recordings of procedures across UMass in the last one and a half years. And from um, the cholangioscopes, we've generated about 100 uh, video recordings. And we've taken from all those video recordings, we've taken each individual frame from every single video. So just to give you a sense, the frame rate for cholangioscopes is about 30 frames per second. Mm -hmm. So a 60 second or uh, video will generate 1,800 images. And we can use okay. all those images to train a computer program or a neural network and an artificial intelligence to say, hey, does this look like cancer or not? And what's nice about that is in the end, we can actually, instead of just generating a, you know, physician's impression saying, hey, gosh, this looks like cancer, we can actually provide a number. Like we can provide you a percentage likelihood that this is cancer just based on a visual impression alone generated by an AI. And the way I sell it to people is like, this is just like a tumor marker. You know, when we generate, um, when we're trying to diagnose people with different types of tumors or these blood markers that can give basically a level saying, this is a lot more concerning for cancer or not. It's the same thing. It's almost like a, uh, it's like a visual biopsy in some ways. That's what we're getting with our artificial intelligence. Mm -hmm. And what we've shown from our 
from our internal data is just the AI reviewing a video recording of the bile duct. That is actually more sensitive and more specific and generally more accurate, significantly so, than taking biopsies of the tumor. Wait a second, yeah. say that again. Yeah. The visual? Yeah, just the camera, just the, the AI viewing the video recording of the cholangioscope is more accurate, significantly more accurate than taking biopsies. And what we've also shown from our study is that it can actually decrease the number of procedures patients need to get a diagnosis. And it actually, if you went on the AI's interpretation of the video recording, you actually can decrease mortality in patients. We showed in a modeling study that you could decrease mortality by 17% if you went with the AI's interpretation of whether or not someone had cancer or not versus biopsy, because you're getting these patients on treatment sooner and you're also um, preventing them from getting needless surgeries. So it's actually, um, it's a fascinating space for sure. And I'll leave with one additional thought. Dr. McManus was talking about how we can apply these things. You know, I think what we've seen a lot in academic medicine is people are generating these models, but they're not actually testing them in the wild. They, you know, and when you generate these models, they're in a very specific test scenario, right? Where everything is controlled, you're giving them you know, really good data and that's not real life. Um, what we're doing here at UMass is we've actually generated a computer um, that can actually be brought into the operating room and actually run the AI model in real time during real patient exams. And so we're actually running our model prospectively in real patient cases in real time. And even in that situation, the AI has still maintained significantly greater accuracy than biopsy. I mean, that is such a powerful example of the potential, I guess. So it, it sounds though as though what you're saying is like, we're not turning patient care over to artificial intelligence, but really we're using it as a tool that then with the physicians and the technicians expertise yes. can really improve outcomes and patient experiences. Yeah, you know, I see when we sell this to people, what I try and tell them is like, listen, I'm not trying to tell you that you use the AI's interpretation alone, and that's meant to drive care. It's meant to provide another data point amongst an ensemble of data points, sure. including someone's tumor marker, including the physician's uh, visual interpretation, including the results of the patient's CAT scan and MRI and all the other things that we use to make a diagnosis for something like cholangiocarcinoma, which you know, historically, because it's so difficult to get cytologic or histologic diagnosis, we have to rely on other data points. And this is just providing one more sort of data point that otherwise has not been available for the last several years. I like to collect uh, quotes. And I, I one that I heard recently and, and I, I love is, AI will not replace doctors. Doctors with AI will replace doctors. Right. Okay. And, and I think that's the, that's the distinction you were making. I would add that I think that while we've focused a lot on, appropriately, on enhancing diagnostic capabilities with AI to date, where I see the greatest opportunity for AI is to help with all the stupid stuff that prevents doctors and nurses from having more time to be humans with their patients. We really have not applied AI to all of the administrative waste, which is in healthcare. We spend way more than other uh, comparable countries on our healthcare system. And a lot of that spending is not on the people delivering the care. It's on administrative or bureaucratic uh, uh, requirements for documentation, 
or faxing this or you know storing that you know the fact is that if an ai algorithm uh, can be used to to manage transfers of trillions of dollars between banks and it's trusted to do that by some of the most uh, uh, conservative people on the planet in the, in, in bankers why healthcare uh, executives are are reluctant to let it use movement of patients across their system befuddles me. I think that's really where we should be thinking about AI as a care traffic controller as well. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that's been the case in the United States for decades upon decades. We keep making the same mistakes over and over. Well, we're still getting the same outcomes, right? And they're not really anything to write home about. Let's give some other examples of AI. So I think the predictive diagnostics one is very powerful, but there's also this whole field of devices providing more care at home where patients can potentially be safer and more comfortable. So let's, if you could share one or two examples of, of the work that's underway on that front. So first to, to emphasize your point, care is moving into the home. It's moving away from brick and mortar, big hospitals and urban areas with, with, with parking fees and, you know, the people with disabilities and other issues in terms of just even busy schedules, uh, you know, can, cannot get in and receive care. There's definitely evidence that our current model of care um, introduces disparities. So whether it be for access reasons, convenience reasons, cost reasons, comfort reasons, People uh, want to receive more of their healthcare when they need it as promptly as possible in the comfort of their own homes. So that is just the truth. So correct. That that to date has included thinking about home nursing, right? So that's been around for a long time. But increasingly, we're seeing through a variety of different initiatives, movement of increasing levels of complexity of care outside of the clinic, outside of the hospital, and into people's homes, all, all the way up to acute care now in the home setting where nurses are going into the home, monitors are being used continuously on patients to keep an eye on them, um, and physicians are tele using telemedicine to conduct their rounds and their visits uh, to discuss the case with the nurse and the patient. All of this facilitated by technology, certainly, but a very old school uh, approach to medicine of, of the house call. And I think that is really, really uh, an exciting area of innovation in general. It's an area of great recognition for UMass as a, as a place where this is happening, but it does require a lot of new technology. So for example, I'll give you an, yesterday I, I was, um, or two days ago, I was meeting with a team that had developed an application powered by AI that would use a photograph of the skin to identify the severity of a ulcer that might be uh, a need for a wound care consult to allow a nurse to identify a patient at risk for a deep infection or a bone infection or potentially need for antibiotic or surgery. And to date, you know, that would require someone to be in the hospital to have a formal wound care consult, very limited resource. So really that's upskilling the, the nurse at the bedside for this particular care environment, right? Because why do you, I don't need a, a phone to do that in the hospital. I just call my friend, the wound care nurse and she comes by, but there, there is no wound care nurse, uh, you know, uh, Chandler Street. So, uh, you know, you need that capability to say, okay, who should we bring in? Who can remain in the home? There are a variety of other examples of point of care ultrasound, uh, as well as all sorts of technologies for continuous monitoring of the patient's blood pressure and oxygen level, mental status, falls, all sorts mm. of cool stuff, also tracking medications in terms of 
uh, adherence to medications uh, because you can't directly observe all the time the patient in the home environment, but you sure can track uh, a pill that has a little biosensor uh, uh, that, that sends off an RFID that, that notifies you that the pill has been taken. All sorts of technologies now being developed for this application. And I'm really, really excited to, to think also about some of the infrastructure changes. For example, growing out paramedicine uh, and thinking about you know, paramedical services, upskilling paramedics, upskilling uh, EMTs, um, even you know, thinking about lay public through high school, college courses to get many more people to be able to do a lot more in the home to save a life and, and maintain um, their loved one's health. So lots of really great stuff going on, but just a couple of uh, applications. So, I mean, I think as a consumer or certainly as a patient, all of us want to really better understand the potential upside of artificial intelligence, digital medicine. And also we really want to understand what what are the red flags? What do we need to be aware of or, or skeptical of, frankly? So I'm going to ask you both to answer two questions. First, what is the highest and best potential of AI? I think you've given some powerful examples, Dr. Maria, but also what are the risks? What worries you? Is it moving too quickly? Why don't we start with Dr. Maria and then Dr. McManus, I'd like you to answer the same questions. Yeah, I think, you know, I, for my space, what I'm really interested in, in terms of what's the highest of highs is, you know, there are a lot of models that we're generating using expert annotations where, you know, just to give another example, we have um, a cytologic AI where basically we've taken brushing samples of the bile duct and we've taken these cells and we're having expert cytopathologists at Mayo Clinic basically label each and every slide and say, do they think that these cells look like cancer or not? And we're creating an AI from their expertise. And what's really cool about that is that you can now apply that to a brushing sample in rural Idaho, in you know, somewhere in uh, a different part of the world. And you're taking the expertise that was otherwise localized in one particular place. And now you can apply it everywhere. And I think that's what's really cool. It, in some ways, I see that as a way to make it more equitable care that patients can receive anywhere. They can get the same expert sort of consultation from a cytopathologist at Mayo Clinic, even if they're not at in Rochester, Minnesota. And I, I think that's potentially where I can see it being really cool from a predictive analytics standpoint. But in terms of the question about what I'm worried about, it's the same thing I was kind of worried about with the COVID research that was coming out originally. And a lot of these peer-reviewed journals were publishing some really questionable studies. And I've seen that I'm, I review a lot of um, AI articles that get published in these um, sort of higher up GI journals. And I think AI has moved pretty quickly in the academic space. There are a lot of um, journals that don't have reviewers that are trained in AI methods. And we're seeing a lot of these articles get published, but they don't pass the smell test when you really take a good look at the methodology and you think about how are these data sets actually created? Are they, are the claims about what this AI can actually do? Are they actually, did they really use a test set that can truly live up to those claims? And I, you know, I'm sorry to say a lot of times I read things. I'm like, no, <laughs> this is not, this is not uh, what they're saying. And, and I think, and I think that's something to be really aware of as a consumer um, is that, Unfortunately, just because something gets published in a peer-reviewed journal does not necessarily mean that it's gold standard, that it's, it truly lives up to that standard. I think there's a lot more that we need to do as scientists to ensure that the AI that is making it into the marketplace has gone through rigorous study, rigorous analysis to ensure that it is uh, able to be replicated and that it can be applied um, safely in the marketplace. And just to give you an example of that, 
And there is a commercially available skin cancer AI in Europe where basically you take a picture of a mole and it will tell you, oh, is this cancer or not? And there was this really interesting study in uh, uh, JAMA Dermatology where they took a picture of a benign mole on the cell phone. The AI said, oh, this is uh, not cancer. Then they took a picture of the same mole and then they drew surgical markings around it. And then they took a picture of it. And now the AI says it's 100% cancer. Then they took a picture of the same mole without surgical markings and just zoomed in on it. And now it looks really big. And now the AI says again, yeah, this is 100% cancer. And that's just another example of, and that, and that one's commercially available, right? Mm -hmm. So I just think that it's super exciting. I'm really excited about all the work, um, certainly that we're all doing here at UMass. But I, I think that we have to be better on an academic standpoint. We have to expect better amongst our colleagues that, and I think otherwise it we're gonna generate a lot of models that aren't going to do well in, in the wild. And it's gonna create this mistrust among the public. Dr. McManus, what would you add to that? Well, I think um, Dr. Mario made some really important points. I'd, I'd sort of uh, start then with the um, fears. And to be frank, I think Dr. Mario didn't cite a problem with AI. He cited a problem with the medical community and its level of expertise and uh, in reviewing the, the weaknesses of certain AI models and appropriately flagging the ones that perform poorly and, and emphasizing the ones that perform well. And yes, in the research space, there's a lot of a lot going on right now. There are relatively few applications in the in the healthcare setting in relation to other industries, in relation to what's going on in research. And so my answer to your first question, are we moving too fast? We're moving too slow. The pace of technologic change is way more rapid than the pace of political, social, business change, and certainly healthcare change, which has been rooted in, in really practice patterns that go back 100 years. And I would say the next five years of medicine will see more change than we saw in the prior 100 years. And where my greatest fear, like Dr. Maria's, is that we will not develop the ethical frameworks, the governance frameworks, uh, the, the necessary application and um, monitoring uh, that's required to ensure that AI models, not just perform, even if you accept that a model performs well on an initial data set, and then you validate it on your data set, you have to come back again to revisit how it's performing because there can be something called drift uh, that can introduce bias and cause all sorts of problems. Because again, it's learning and it's moving constantly. And you know, our models, like the IRB model that we use in the medical school to ensure review of science is built on a, a certain paradigm of review of the initial proposal, periodic updates about safety, but it's not really designed for AI review. And, um, and I would just say we're vulnerable because we have not moved as quickly as I would like to really dedicate sufficient energy to ensure that AI models are governed and monitored well. That being said, the, the flip of that is, if we allow restrictive policies, politics, which unfortunately enter into this frequently lobbying groups saying I mean, certain job types need to be protected or physician groups saying, you know, well, their AI is taking our job. I mean, the reality is those, those really prevent uh, the application of AI where it's desperately needed to reduce cost, improve access, reduce inequities. Um, and I think 
we really need to balance this risk by doing exactly what Dr. Maria said, showing the public that we're fully committed to actually saying, no, that AI algorithm is not good. But when we find one that is, really doing a good job to ensure that it's safe. And I think if we if we move with the idea that we have to maintain the trust of our patients and our research participants always at the forefront, that AI will be a very powerful net sum gain for us uh, in the end. Right. Well, that's a pretty bold prediction that we're going to see more change in the next five years than we have in the last century. Let's uh, one final word, um, Dr. Maria, I'll ask you for for your prediction. What do you when you look in your crystal ball, maybe for the next decade when it comes to AI in healthcare, what do you see? Yeah, you know, in my space, I see probably in the next 10 to 15 years that many of our endoscopic procedures will have an onboard AI system to help uh, either detect or diagnose malignancy. There's already an example of that being used here at UMass. Uh, there's a device called GI Genius, um, which is being applied over at uh, Eastern Ave. So if you have a colonoscopy done at Eastern Avenue, there's going to be an onboard AI system that's actually going to be helping point out polyps to endoscopists during their colonoscopy to make sure that all the polyps are removed. And I think that's the first iteration of an endoscopic AI platform. And my prediction is probably in the next five to 10 years, um, amongst all the different procedures that we do, I, I imagine there will be at least one onboard AI system for the majority of those. So I think it's coming. Uh, my hope, though, is that we can make the systems better because I can tell you the GI Genius platform is great, but it could definitely use some, some tweaks. <laughs> <laughs> it's got a good name, GI Genius. Yeah. And Dr. Neil Maria and Dr. David McManus, a really fascinating, timely conversation. I really thank you for making time uh, to share your insights with us. Thanks for the invitation. Thank you so much. And to our listeners, if you like the voices of UMass Chan, please subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. This year, you can find all of our episodes on the UMass Chan YouTube channel as well, if you prefer to listen there. Thank you for taking the time to listen. I'm Jennifer Berryman, Vice Chancellor for Communications here at UMass Chan. Follow us at UMass Chan on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, and LinkedIn. On YouTube, find us at UMass Chan Medical School.